In today's shiur, we will continue our discussion of Bechirach of Shit, of the debate regarding free will in Jewish philosophy. In the previous year, we analyzed the mainstream opinion in Jewish philosophy, which held, like the Rambam, that each of us have free will, we can choose on our own to do good and evil, and neither God nor any other force makes us choose either possibility. However, there is a minority view in our Mesorah, which held that, in fact, we do not have free will to choose between good and evil or any other choices we make. This minority view comes in two different formulations, one found in the Rishonim and one in the Achronim. Among the Rishonim, we find the opinion of Rav Chastai Kreskes in his Sefer Or Hashem, in the second book, in the fifth part of that book, who has a long discussion of whether or not we have free will, or, in his philosophical language, mitziot or heder teva ha'efshar. Is there or is there not such thing as non-determined events, such as human choices, which are spontaneously and freely decided, as opposed to other things in the world which are determined by various causes and the Newtonian laws of physics, etc. He concludes his discussion and tells us that there are many proofs and much evidence that says that there is free choice, but yet there is much evidence arguing for the possibility that there is no free will and all of our actions are determined. He decides in the end that It must be that in one aspect we have free will, but in another aspect we do not. And he explains what he means. He says, What were all my proofs? We won't go through all of his proofs, but some of his proofs that our actions are determined are A, the discussion we mentioned in the, la- in the previous year, from God's foreknowledge. If Hashem knew before we were born everything we would do, then it must be that we will do them. B, he held, like some contemporary scientists, that the laws of physics work, the laws of cause and effect, at the very least, work inside our brains as well, and therefore everything we do, if we were great enough uh, biological engineers, which we are not yet, But if we understood science fully, we would understand that every choice we make is based on some neurons in our brain, which are caused by something. Either we were born and our brain was was, had a certain attribute, or some stimuli, something that we experienced in our lives caused us to be a certain way. But between nature and nurture, if you add in our genetic makeup and how we were born, and all of the experiences that we had in our lives and all the various factors that acted upon us, then everything we do, as some neuroscientists and psychologists would tell us nowadays, everything we do is merely a result of various causes which are beyond our control. Rav Chesdai Kreskes was very convinced by these arguments. So he therefore decided that we do have free will in a certain aspect. We can do whatever we choose. There is no demon, and there is no magical force, and Hashem 
does not move our hands like a puppeteer moves the uh, marionette. No one forces us to do anything. We do whatever we want to do. However, what we want to do is determined neurobiologically and psychologically by what kind of brain we were born with and the experiences we had in our lives. So Rav Chastai says, in fact, everything is determined. The genetic makeup of our brain and the surroundings which we found ourselves in force us to want to do certain things. However, and in other aspects, we are free because we can do whatever we want and no one makes us do anything we don't want. It's just that what we want is determined by physical forces. To some, this sounds like we have no free will. After all, everything we do is determined by forces beyond our control, and there's no place where we can just insert ourselves into the chain of cause and effect and decide, no, I want to do this or that. On the other hand, Rav Chastai says, we have complete free will, because it's only up to us to decide what we want to do. The fact that our brains are mere computers, which, have pro- which are programmed when we're born, and have determined answers inside them, does not take away the fact that we are free to choose to do what we want. Although, we are not free to choose what it is that we want. Rav Chastai claims that all of the proofs brought by mainstream Jewish philosophers for the existence of free will can be adequately addressed by his theory. Let us go through some of those proofs. One proof was from experience. We feel like it's up to us and we can do whatever we want and no one forces us to do otherwise. Rav Chastai Kreska says, of course. Our experience just proves that we can do what we want. I can decide to pick up a piece of paper or put down a piece of paper. I can decide to continue recording this year or press stop and end this year right here. But that merely proves that we are free to do what we want. It does not prove why we want to do something and in fact, that, Rav Chastai claims, is determined by forces beyond our control. A second proof was from the language of the Torah and the Nevi'im. The Torah and the Nevi'im are full of Musr. They tell us, choose X. X being mitzvot, of course. Choose mitzvot. Don't choose Averot. They tell us, the choice is yours. Uvachartu b'chayim, choose life. And the Nevi'im come and give us Musr. Why would Hashem write a whole Torah and send all of the Nevi'im to encourage us to make the right choice if the choice was merely determined by nature and nurture by the way we were born and the stimuli that act upon us in our life. Rav Chastai said, this also fits in well with his theory. All this proves is that we are free to choose to do what we want. So the Torah tells us, do the right thing, choose the right thing. However, what we want to do is determined by our surroundings and the stimuli that act upon us. If so, why would Hashem send us all of these messages, this Musr in the Tanakh? Rav Chastai says, of course. If what we choose to do is determined by our surroundings and the forces that act upon us, then one of the forces that act upon us is the messages Hashem sends us through His Torah and through His prophets, the Nevi'im. And, you know, if one were, like many contemporary liberals, if one were to hold that people don't choose for themselves, they are a product of their environment, 
then what's the best way to improve people's lives? To improve their environment. And if you improve their environment, it will make them act better. How did Hashem choose to improve our environment? In various ways. But one of them was by sending us messages in the Torah, encouraging us to choose the right thing. It is not that Hashem sent us these messages in the Torah because it was totally undetermined which way we would choose, and He was attempting to influence the outcome. Rather, Hashem sent us this message because it is determined what we will want to do. It's determined by our surroundings and our environment. So Hashem added this message of inspiration to choose mitzvot into our environment with the knowledge that the more positive messages of inspiration and the more we are encouraged to do the right thing by our environment, the more likely it is that our brains will, as a response to that stimuli, wish to do the right thing, and then we'll do whatever our brains want to do. So Hashem did not tell us choose the right thing because we have free choice. Rather, He told us to choose the right thing, to be add a positive factor to that collection of stimuli called the environment that makes our brains think one way or the other, and tilt the scales of environmental influence in favor of our brains wanting to choose the right thing because they deterministically listen to what it says in the Tanakh. A, uh, a third proof that many Jewish philosophers brought for the existence of free will was the words of Chazal. Chazal say, Everything is in the hands of heaven except for whether we choose good or evil. So it says explicitly in the words of Chazal that Hashem doesn't force us to choose good and evil, rather it is in our hands. If Chastai says that also fits in with my theory. Yes, Hashem doesn't force us to do good and evil. It's up to us whether to do good and evil. It's up to us to do whatever we want. However, and Hashem doesn't directly force us. We do whatever we want on our own. However, what we want to do is not directly controlled by Hashem as if He were a puppeteer forcing us to do things. But what we want to do is controlled by nature and nurture, by the various physical and psychological forces that act upon us, so that it is not directly bidei shamayim, it is not in the hands of direct control of God, because I'll never said that it was completely and freely up to us, just that it's not controlled by God. Yes, it's not controlled by God. It's controlled by those forces inside our brain that make us want to do one thing or want to do the other, want to do the opposite. The, uh, Fourth objection is taken a little more seriously by Chastai Kreskis, which is the argument from divine justice. We know, we are quite certain, that Hashem rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Every time we do a mitzvah, we can expect to be rewarded, and every time we do an Avera, we can expect to be punished. But we also know that Hashem is just and fair. If we chose what we did on our own, then it would be perfectly just and fair of Hashem to reward and punish us. But if what we do, even though we are free actors to do whatever we want, but if what we want to do is merely a product of neurobiological, physical processes going on in our brains, if what we want to do is determined by our nature and our nurture, then how is it fair for Hashem to punish us? After all, we just did what we wanted to do, but what we wanted to do was pre-programmed as if we were a robot by our genetic makeup and by forces in our environment. 
If so, how is it fair for Hashem to reward and punish us? To address this objection, Rav Chastai says that one must, as they say in yeshivas, make a chakira, that one must differentiate between two different understandings of the nature of divine reward and punishment. Now this is an important question in and of itself. When we say and we believe that God rewards and punishes, that mitzvot have a reward and averot carry in their wake a punishment, what do we mean by that? I will give an example of two different types of punishments that a teacher can threaten in school. A teacher may be teaching math to high school students and say, if you don't pay attention in this lesson, I will take away your recess. I'll make you stay after school. I'll put you in detention. That's one kind of punishment. Or the teacher might say, if you don't pay, this lesson is crucial. If you don't pay attention in this lesson, you won't understand the material and you will fail your bagrut. Or that's what she would say in Israel. In New York State, she would say, you would fail the regents and you won't get your diploma and you won't get into college and you won't be able to have a successful career when you grow up because you won't know math. Now, a topic which does not uh, concern us right now is the fascinating question in educational philosophy, which of these two is the better approach or more in a more sophisticated vein, how and when should each of these types of threats be used by a teacher? But what interests us now is which of these models is Hashem when he is in punishing us and rewarding us for violating or keeping the Torah? There's a fundamental difference between these two punishments. If we don't listen in math lesson and we lose recess or we stay after school, that is not an internal effect of not listening during math class. That is an externally opposed punishment. That's like saying you robbed a liquor store, you get 10 years in prison. However, when the teacher threatens that if we don't listen, we won't know math and we'll fail the exam, then that is not an externally imposed punishment. That is a natural consequence of not listening. If we don't listen, we won't know the math. And if we don't know the math, we'll fail the test. When Hashem says there will be rewards and punishments for keeping or violating the mitzvot, what does he mean? Does he mean that he will externally, artificially impose a punishment upon us? Say, you, you ate a cheeseburger, you get two months in Gehenim. You ate three cheeseburgers, you get four and a half months. Whatever it may be. Or does he mean, no, he's not going to sit there like a judge with a gavel, as it were, and hand down sentences. Rather, he means, look, I, ch- I chose these mitzvot and avirot for a reason. Because in the way I set up the world, in the divine scheme of things, metaphysically, if you do avirot, naturally a consequence will flow from that avirah, which will lead to a punishment. If you sully your, for example, if you sully your soul, you with Ave wrote your entire lifetime, then naturally your soul will be in a state where it cannot attain everlasting bliss in the next world and will be merely consigned to suffering. The natural result of doing an Avera is an effect which we suffer from. And the natural result of doing a mitzvah is some improvement to our soul, which we'll benefit from. So, when we believe 
one of the principles of Jewish belief that God rewards and punishments, rewards and punishes, what do we mean? He takes away recess or gives us a free period? Do we mean that he artificially imposes a reward or a punishment? Or do we mean that he built into the world that the natural consequence of a mitzvah or an avera is a reward or a punishment? So Rav Chastai says that if we believed in the first version of reward and punishment, that God sits there like a judge after your 120 years. You go upstairs, God sits there like a judge, bangs his gavel and says, you deserve a reward, you get a punishment. Then he would have no way of understanding this phenomenon. It would be unfair of Hashem to hand down a sentence of reward or punishment if everything we did was what we wanted to do. But what we wanted to do was determined by our genetic makeup and by our environment. However, if Chastai says, in fact, he believes in the second version of reward and punishment. Naturally, when we do a mitzvah, we are better off. And the natural consequence of an Aveira is being worse off and ultimately suffering. So if Chastai says, when it comes to natural consequences, it's not that they are fair. It's still not fair. But when it comes to natural consequences, you can't ask whether or not it's fair. It's not a valid objection to object that natural consequence is not fair. After all, if, God forbid, I fall into a fire, I will get burned. And if it's a large enough fire, likely die. If I jump into a fire out of my own reckless negligence, I deserve to get burned. If an evil person pushes me in the fire, then I, I was careful. And some evil person picked me up and threw me into a, a burning house. I don't deserve to get burned. But I will anyway, because the natural consequence of fire is the suffering of being burnt. And since it's a natural consequence, it doesn't matter whether or not it's fair. That's just what happens. Rav Chastai says, likewise, the punishments for doing Averot, or rewards for doing mitzvot, are natural consequences of our actions. Therefore, they're not fair. But it doesn't matter whether or not they're fair. God has to be fair in that God himself cannot intervene in the world and do something unfairly. But the natural way the world works, after all, we all know that God created the world and that sometimes innocent people fall into fires and get burnt, even though it's not fair and that sometimes people get into car crashes even though they were driving safely and wearing their seatbelts and doing everything right and they said tefillat haderech, and they still get killed in a car crash, unfortunately, lo aleinu. And it's not fair, but that's the way the world works. A natural consequence of these various accidents is suffering, and it doesn't have to be fair. Likewise, says Rav Chastai, in the realm of Scharva Onesh, it may not be ultimately fair, but since the natural consequence of, say, Chilol Shabbos, or worshipping idols, is ultimate suffering... Therefore, whether fair or not, that's what happens to someone who commits these transgressions. This is perhaps the weakest point of uh, Rav Chastai's presentation. Logically, it makes perfect sense. But it still seems a little funny, a little difficult to us that God would create a world where there are these natural spiritual consequences to all the things mentioned in his Holy Torah and somehow there was no system of fairness behind it. But Rav Chastai says he's willing to pay this philosophical price 
I mean, in order to, perhaps for other reasons also, but in order to defend his theory about free will. So if Chastai Kreska says, just to summarize, that we have free will to do what we want, and no one forces our hand. But what we want to do is completely deterministic and is determined not by our soul acting in a way called free will, but by our nature and our nurture. And that is what Chazal meant. God doesn't force our hand. He just lets the rules of physics and the deterministic nature of the universe run its course. That's why the Chumash and the Nevi'im gave us so much Musr. Not because what we choose is undetermined, but to be one of the forces that determines that a certain percentage of people who would have done Avirot, if not for the environmental factor of the Tanakh, will listen to the Tanakh, and that environmental factor will make them do mitzvot. He explains that although we feel that we have free will, that's just a feeling that we can do what we want. But we have no feeling as to why we want to do things, and that, in fact, is determined. And to address the fourth objection, he says, it turns out that, in fact, divine reward and punishment for mitzvot and avirot is not so fair if what we want to do is determined by nature and nurture. But, since he believes that punishment is, it's failing the Bagrut exam, not losing the recess. He believes that punishment is a natural consequence of sin and not an artificially imposed judgment. Natural consequences don't have to be fair, and that's just the way things work. Again, it may leave us a bit unsatisfied that even though he's addressed this particular objection, that it's a funny kind of world for God to want us to live in, but he's willing to pay the price and assume that nonetheless... God, in his divine wisdom, determined that this was the kind of world he wanted to create. In contemporary times, there are those scientists and philosophers who are influenced by them, who actually hold that someday, if we understand all the laws of physics, etc., well enough, we will see that Rav Chastai-Kreskus was right, and that everything we want to do is merely determined by the physical processes within our brains. However, there are other scientists who speculate that perhaps when we understand it properly on the quantum mechanical level, quantum mechanics being the branch of physics that deals with results that are not determined by causes in any scientific fashion, we will see that perhaps not everything that we decide to do, not everything that goes on in our brain is determined by some scientific law or force. Um, Rather, It is just one of those things which science cannot determine, which we call in philosophical language the actions of uh, free will. A second, even more radical, minority opinion regarding free will is found in certain radical Hasidic thinkers, foremost among them, the Ishbitzer Rebbe, in his famous work, Me Shiloach, on the Torah. The Ishbitzer Rebbe takes things a step further than Rav Chastai Kreskis. He says, not only, he says, in fact, we don't have free will at all. Everything we do is not because we want to do it, is not because of the makeup of our brains. Everything we do, and everything that happens in the world for that matter, is merely an expression of Ritzon Hashem, of the divine will. If I do a mitzvah, it is merely because God wanted me to do so. And if I do an Aveira, it is merely because God wanted me to do so. Everything we do, unlike Rav Chasta, who said, no one forces us to do it. Just what we want to do is determined. He says, no, 
someone does force us to do everything we do. And that someone, of course, being Hashem, that God runs the world in an omnipotent fashion. God is all-powerful. And unlike other Jewish thinkers who said, God is all-powerful, but delegated the power of free choice to human beings, the Meshulah says, no, God is all-powerful and retains all that power for himself. And a proper appreciation of God's power only is available to those who believe that we have no free will and everything is done by Hashem. He may not have philosophical reasons for assuming this, but perhaps hashkafic reasons, meaning literally reasons of viewpoint. His view of Judaism, his view of Avodat Hashem, of worshipping Hashem, is that a worship of Hashem means not just doing mitzvot in the Torah. Worshipping God means recognizing that He is all-powerful and that we are nothing compared to Him. And someone who thinks that I can choose to do whatever I want, whether God likes it or not, I can eat a cheeseburger even though God doesn't want me to, does not really believe in the power of God and is not really worshipping God. The ultimate, at least not in the ultimate sense, the ultimate worship of God, according to the Meshiloach, is to recognize that everything, including human actions, is determined only by the will of God and that we have no power at all. To completely, to completely nullify ourselves and our own power in the presence of God and realize that we control nothing and He controls everything. That is the ultimate form of Avodah Hashem, of worship of God, according to the Meshiloach. He explains this opinion in a number of places in his commentary on Chumash, including the beginning of uh, both Parshat Vayera and Parshat Korach. And, um, of course, he has to deal with the fact that uh, we feel like we do have free choice. We don't feel controlled. And that Chazal tell us that we have free choice and Hashem doesn't control us. And that the Tanakh implies, by the fact that Hashem tells us to choose, implies that we have the free choice and that God doesn't merely control everything, and that it wouldn't be fair of Hashem to reward and punish if He, in fact, controlled everything we do and it had nothing to do with our own decisions. He uses somewhat uh, heavy artillery to uh, address these questions, and he tells us that, in fact, it says explicitly in the Gemara, HaKobi de Shamayim, Chutzmi Yorit Shamayim, that everything is controlled by God except for our own choices. But he says, That only meant in accordance with the limits of normal human understanding, that's how it seems to us. But in truth, In truth, everything is in the hands of Hashem, including whether or not we listen to Him. In truth, everything is in the hands of Hashem. It's just that in this world, Hashem hid His power and presence somewhat for inscrutable divine reasons and created an illusion of free will. God hid Himself and pretended that He didn't control everything. Pretended, gave us at least the option to think that we make our own decisions. But in truth, that's all an illusion. Now, how does He address all of these philosophical objections? He says, I don't have to deal with philosophy. All the philosophical objections and all of philosophy and every book written about philosophy and every logical argument is only in accordance with human understanding, in accordance with this illusion of human logic. But the truth transcends human logic. It's a great tactic to have the truth transcend human logic. Then you can't have any questions against it. 
Right? There's no need to address philosophical issues. It transcends human logic. It's a secret. The secret that transcends human logic is that everything is controlled by God, and that doesn't have to make philosophical sense. Because Chazal tell us on the philosophical, common sense, logical level, we believe in free will. But that's all an illusion. In truth, we transcend logic, transcend philosophy, transcend all of the questions and answers back and forth, and move to a realm of ultimate truth, where there is God and only God. This, of course, is based on a Kabbalah, one particular Kabbalistic tradition which sees all of reality as existing on two levels. A truer, more inner level, where there is only God, and an outer, illusory level, where other forces and beings exist as well. But that is not our topic. Uh, that is not our topic today. To return to the Meishiloach, the Meishiloach tells us that what is the tafkid, what is the ultimate ideal achievement of a human being in his lifetime in this world? To recognize the truth. This is something only few people could do, such as Yitzchak Avinu, um, such as Korach, such as, interestingly, Zimri, uh, he claims. A few unique people in, people on a very high level of spirituality were able not just to pay lip service and say, oh, I don't believe I have free will, I believe God controls everything. Anyone can fake it. But these people really believed in their innermost fiber that they were nothing and that everything anyone else did, everything that happened and everything that they did was merely an expression of the power and will of the divine, of God, and there was nothing else in the world. Some of the uh, perhaps dangerous or risky implications of this philosophy is that ultimately, on the ultimate level, there's no difference between mitzvah and avera. There's no difference between good and evil. Whether I do a mitzvah or an Avera, it is equally good because everything I do is not my own choice. It's not, it's not that I can choose to do what God wants me to or the opposite of what God wants. Everything I do, God wanted me to do. Okay, this is one of the reasons why his philosophy was never accepted in broad circles of Jewish thought uh, because of this danger that someone could come along and say, well, I am, I'm Zimri. I can do Averot, but I am on such a high level that I recognize that everything is really the will of Hashem. So, Averot are also good things to do. Of course, the Meshulach himself said that very, very few people are on such a high level, and those people would not do Averot anyway, except under the most limited and historically rare circumstances. But, nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, Philosophically, he holds there's ultimately no difference between a mitzvah performed by a Jew or an Avera transgressed by a Jew, and ultimately they are both expressions of Hashem's divine plan for the world and what Hashem really wanted to happen. One of the interesting implications of this, which perhaps we'll have to say for another time, is how to understand the process of tshuva, while most of us based on the Rambam and the Doctrine of Free Will, understand that tshuva means I take responsibility for my own actions and I know that it was my own fault and blame myself. For of Tzadik HaKohen of Lublin, in the tradition of the Meishiloach, true tshuva, tshuva me'ava, the highest tshuva means I don't blame myself, but rather I recognize that even though I did the Avera, it was really merely the will of Hashem and not my own decision and therefore was for the good. This is how he explains Chazal's statement, that when someone does the highest form of tshuva, his averot, all of a sudden count as mitzvot. 
because he claims that the highest level of tshuva is to achieve the goal of life according to the Meshiloach, to recognize that everything is in the hands of Hashem, even my own actions and decisions, and in which case, of course everything I did, whether mitzvah or avera, is a mitzvah, because everything I did, I now realize, is the will of Hashem and is exactly what Hashem wanted to happen. Okay, the, certainly the implications of this philosophy are quite risky, to say the least. They could be, uh, they could certainly be misused by those who wanted to justify Averot, but the Meishiloach and Rav Tzadik HaKon Lublin and those philosophers who uh, followed this train of thought were very careful to explain that this never justifies doing an Avera because anyone on such a high level to really, not just pay lip service, but to really internally believe that God controlled everything would never do an Avera in the first place if they were on such a high level, except under very limited circumstances that don't come up in normal lifetime of regular human beings. The, uh, to summarize then, we have seen three approaches to the question of free will in Jewish thought. 99% of all Jewish thinkers throughout the ages hold that we have free will, that's why we're responsible for our actions, that's why we are rewarded and punished, that's why we have to do tshuva, as the Ramam tells us. The minority approach of Chastai Kreskas is that we are free actors to do what we want, but what we want to do is determined by various laws of neurophysics. And he then explains how to resolve all the philosophical difficulties that stem from this stance. And the third radical Hasidic approach of a minority of Hasidic thinkers, such as the Ishbitzer, the Meishiloach, and his school, is that, in fact, the ideal worship of God is the recognition that everything is controlled by God and I'm nothing. I'm not even able to control my own actions because everything is Hashem. This creates many philosophical difficulties, but these philosophical difficulties don't bother these thinkers because they hold that all the philosophical difficulties are on the level that Chazal talk about, the level of human intellect where we think we have free will, not on the true level achieved by a few unique individuals who realize the ultimate truth that there is God and only God acting in the universe. This concludes our discussion of free will. Certainly, I think that the mainstream approach, as I mentioned, is to believe that we do have free will, and as the Rambam tells us in Hilchot Shuvah, the main thrust of Jewish philosophy tells us that we decide on our own whether to do good or evil, whether to choose right or wrong, and therefore, if we have done every rote and chosen the wrong thing, the Rambam tells us, it behooves us to take responsibility for our actions, the opposite of Rav Tzadik Cohen's approach, and do tshuva and attempt to use our free will to do only good and to perfect ourselves as much as we possibly can.